teach you go to school. And here's your name. What do you think of what's going on right now, mate? These evil little invisible parasites. Satan worshipping Freemason moron. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're not run by factions. Get the fuck out of camera. There are much more powerful international forces in play. Is this pig guy? Is this what pig guy is? I don't fucking know what's happening. Please get outside and look at the moon quickly. It's been crazy, guys, but guess what? It's how it is, mate. Mate, because I want to do it slowly. But I ain't spending any time on it. Welcome to the Condition Release Program, a podcast that delves into the nether world of cults, crims, and con artists. I'm Jack the Insider, otherwise known as Peter Hoisted for tax purposes. And I'm Joel Hill, and today we have a true crime special. Who killed Ray the Lizard Loxley? And Loxley was murdered in 1979. I had presumed, just as everyone had presumed, that his killer was Christopher Dale Rent-A-Kill Flannery, but it wasn't. Wasn't. And I am able to prove that he couldn't have been the murderer. So the question is, who did kill Ray Loxley? It's an extraordinary tale of the criminal underworld and of corrupt police in Victoria, with a few corrupt cops from New South Wales just sort of thrown in for good measure. They're very good corrupt up there. Yeah, they never left out of it. And we just want to say to listeners up front, this story contains information about violent crime and sexual offences that remain unprosecuted to this day. Yeah, so if you find that sort of material disturbing or triggering, you may not want to proceed into the episode. And we understand that. It's totally fair enough. I mean, you know, it's, that's fair. Yeah, we sure do. Yeah. It, it can be gross. Yeah. Much of what we cover today revolves around a few corrupt cops, one of whom was arguably one of the worst sex offenders in Victorian history. Ugh. So be warned. Yeah, yeah. And there is another caveat. It's the show is free, but it comes at a cost. Yes. A, a, a true cost. Yes, indeed. Yes. We spend a lot of time putting the show together, doing intensive research and prep. So if you are willing and able, you can help support the show so we can keep bringing it to you. Yes, please. Just go to www.patreon.com backslash the conditional release program and you'll see for as little as $5 a month, you'll have access to premium content, Zoom meetings with Jack and I, and the chance to record the show with us if you give us a whole bunch of money. And of course, if you do that, you can watch me drink delicious tins of CBCO, the IPA, there's the MIDI. Mate, I get through them all. And just get sort of more and more tipsy as the show gets on. It's good. Yes. It's high class tipsy there's too. Another, there's another warning for, for our listeners there, Joel. <laughs> Later in the show, things might start dissembling a little bit at your end. Usually by Pete, I'm I'm pissed. I'm actually quite pissed. But that's, yeah, I don't want to encourage uh, irresponsible drinking. We heard from a patron recently who was one of our lifers. That means a top dollar subscriber. We thank you very much for that. And he told us that he thought our show was great value. He yeah. gets the CRP program weekly, the okay. premium behind the wall episode, and he reckons it's cheap at half the price, which is a phrase I've never really understood. Well, why does he just give us twice the money then, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, that's enough begging for us now. You know, we do it every time, but we hope that every time it just chips away at your resolve because it is on with the show as we delve into the underworld of Australian crime and ask, who killed Ray Loxley? And listeners, I've studied the life and death of Christopher Dale Flannery closer than just about anyone. I sat through days and days of his coronial inquest, the longest coronial inquest in New South Wales history, which had run for five years. A couple of breaks, but it ran for five years. I've interviewed people who knew him, including Roger Rogerson, Graham Henry, police officers good and bad, journalists, investigators. Flannery, of course, was known as Rent-A-Kill, a contra killer. Uh, There are a number of murders attributed to him. He was tried for the murder of businessman Roger Wilson in 1980, 
but acquitted after a long trial, then the record for the longest trial in the in the Victorian Supreme Court. Oof. Now, Flannery disappeared on May 9, 1985. His body has never been found. It remains one of the great mysteries of Australian crime. A long-running coronial inquest handed down its findings in 1997 that Flannery had been murdered on or after the day he disappeared by a person or persons unknown. Hmm, mysterious. The only other murder Flannery was charged with was that of Raymond Francis the Lizard Loxley, who was found dead in Menai in Sydney's southwest in 1979. Now, the trial, Flannery's trial, was no build in 1985. And Ray Loxley is a forgotten man, a forgotten victim of a forgotten crime. I knew little about Loxley, and for many years I had simply presumed that Flannery had killed him. And I think that's the trick to it. I was doing a show for Foxtel, Tough Nuts, and one of the interview subjects was Ray Mooney. Ray had spent time in prison with Flannery. They became quite close friends. Ray had been convicted for rape, something he's always acknowledged his guilt over. And since that conviction, Ray became a model citizen. He was the first prisoner in Australia um, uh, to uh, get a university degree. He founded a, th- a number of theatre groups, uh, often with uh, former inmates from prison uh, and kids uh, living in, shall we say, cultural poverty as well. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and and they would put on performances. And Ray would go on to write novels and plays, including the play, which would be turned into a film called Every Night, Every Night which was a study of Flannery's time in H Division in Pentridge, the maximum security wing of, the, of uh, Pentridge Prison, where prisoners were routinely flogged and literally broke rocks during the day. This is in the 1970s, people. Flannery famously had gone on strike in the jail. He copped his floggings uh, for that, but ultimately Flannery's strike led to a parliamentary inquiry which saw three particularly sadistic prison officers quietly sacked. So Flannery was considered a hero by many inmates, and he was a very, very tough man, very tough man. When he did the protest, wasn't didn't he do something in the nude? He stripped off all his all his prison garb and, and walked to uh, the, the warden's office and said, that's it, I'm on strike. <laughs> <laughs> Here's my dick, I'm on strike. Bang, crash, smash, bang. <laughs> but that was it, he's going on strike. He was assisted by his brother. Now, Flannery's family history is really interesting. Um, he, he was assisted by his brother, who was a lawyer at the Trades Hall Council. Ah, yeah, that's right. We've covered all this before, I think. Really interesting so, stuff. Yeah, he, so his brother was uh, uh, gave him assistance there. Uh, it was his sort of man on the outside that led to this parliamentary inquiry. Ah, really, conditions yeah. in H Division were just appalling. They were probably appalling by 19th century standards. <laughs> and yeah, this I had been going on for a very long time. So you can understand how... People like Ray, but others, other other perhaps criminal element, people who go on to become um, a career criminal, would look at Flannery with with genuine respect. Yeah, yeah. Now, Ray was a lecturer at Swinburne University in creative writing. I think I've got that right, but certainly was a lecturer, and I'm proud to call him a friend. He's a good bloke. One thing I quickly learned about Ray is there's no bullshit about him. He's unerringly honest, mm. and we didn't hit it off the first time we met. During a pre-interview, Ray asked me about Ray Loxley, and I just said, oh, that was one of Flannery's. Mm. He said, you want to do your research? And, and then he gave me a bit of a bollocking. <laughs> it was pretty gentle. And afterwards, he apologised, which I was even more sort of taken aback by. Yeah. But it made me pause, and I started looking into the murder of Ray Loxley. 
and it became clear that Flannery could not have murdered Ray Loxley. He had no motive, which is understandable if you're a contract killer, but most of all, he had no opportunity. Flannery's alibi at or before the time of the murder of Ray Loxley was rock solid. Okay, yeah. Well, the question is, who did kill Ray Loxley? And we can't really answer that definitively today. But one distinct possibility is that Ray Loxley's killing was a blue murder, either committed by corrupt police or at their instruction. Yes. Something was terrifyingly common back then. Now, listeners, while we tell the story, ask yourself one question. Who better to deflect attention towards than a man with the reputation of a hitman? Yeah, over a murder. A perfect fall guy. Yeah, perfect fall guy. It goes without saying that when the trial of Chris Flannery fell over in 1985, the murder of Raymond Francis Loxley, a.k.a. The Lizard. I don't know why he got that nickname, by the way, but he was known as The Lizard. Yeah. Remains unsolved. Well, I mean, yeah, let's, let's flesh that out. Who was Ray Loxley? Okay. Um, Loxley had a reputation as a standover man. He's quite a young man. He's dead at 24. Jeez. And the story went that he had come to Melbourne. This is the sort of the official version, the gossip, the, you know, the, the police gossip, that, yeah, okay. that he'd come to Melbourne to extort money from Melbourne's illegal brothels. At 24? Hmm. This yeah. is not true, by the way, but that's the way the story went. It's a kind of a half-truth that I had accepted and is generally accepted to this day that Loxley had come from Sydney to Melbourne to stand over brothels. And I really should have known better because that would have been a fool's errand. It's a matter of record now that many illegal brothels, in fact, they were all illegal in 1979, but some of those illegal brothels, a large number of them, were um, a subject to police corruption. Yeah. That is to say that a small group of police officers, detectives, were running protection rackets, receiving bribes, and for that money, the brothel owner would get a heads up if the vice squad was on its way or the detectives themselves would raid other brothels. Ah, uh, okay. Push them knock out, out the competition. Mm. Yeah. yeah. The evidence shows that Loxley wasn't standing over brothels. He was employed as a sitter, and, and that's a term, as a sort of general's, general dog's body and security at a brothel, and, and he worked at the Embassy Brothel in Ackland Street, St Kilda. Bit of storied history there. It, it, it's owned by a sort of famous artistic family who probably had no idea that their home was being used as a brothel. (laughs) The embassy was one of a dozen or more illegal brothels owned and run by a man by the name of Jeffrey Lamb, who's a really nasty piece of work who enticed women to become sex workers with the lure of drugs. Lamb ran his brothels with impunity because he paid corrupt police to look the other way. Not just that, any other brothels not under the control of Lamb were subject to arrests, fire bombings, and standover tactics employed by corrupt police. When I was growing up, and I would have been in my late teens, you're talking about, yeah, I would have been in my late teens, it was like every weekend. You'd pick up the paper on a Monday and there'd been a fire at a brothel. Yeah. There'd been an arson attack. There'd been a firebombing. There'd been uh, a Molotov cocktail hurled through the hurled through the windows. It just happened pretty much every week. It, it's not, very it's nice. not normal, by the way. It's no. not normal behaviour, but it was normal for Melbourne in the late nineteen seventies. And we know about the standover tactics of, of corrupt police because in nineteen ninety three, after a long, long investigation, one of those corrupt police. Detective Paul William Higgins was sentenced to six years in jail for conspiracy relating in part to the standover rackets in Melbourne brothels in the 1970s and 80s. Ooh. 
Now, to give you an idea of who Detective Paul Higgins was, we'll turn to the words of veteran crime writer and associate editor at the Herald Sun, Andrew Rule. In 2018, two years after the death of Higgins, Andrew Rule wrote an article in The Hun where he disclosed what many within VicPol knew to be true. Paul Higgins was a serial rapist. Here's an extract. When Lindy was 19 and living in East Melbourne, she answered a knock late one evening to a detective who was dating the woman in the unit next door. Lindy had met him only once, when her neighbour Julie introduced him as her boyfriend. She knew his name, but did not know he was notorious, one of the most violent and corrupt policemen in the land. The detective said his girlfriend wasn't home, hardly surprising given she was a nightclub waitress, and asked if he could wait at Lindy's unit. It was a deliberate ruse by a cunning predator. The teenager let the detective into her flat. He flashed a huge roll of cash, presumably to impress her. She made him a cup of coffee and attempted small talk. He rewarded her kindness by raping her. And the following day, Lindy, not her real name, raped at 19 years of age, reported the crime to police and was essentially told there was nothing that could be done, or as Rule wrote in the Hun. After daylight, she went to the nearest police station to report the rape. As soon as she told the officer on duty her attacker's name, he put down his pen and told her to go home and forget about it. No point in taking it further, he warned. It was true. In the Victoria Police of 1978, the rapist, Higgins, was untouchable. Now, Lindy wasn't, was not Higgins' only victim. It's impossible to say how many victims he had raped, more than a dozen, and Higgins was able to continue raping women because he was a police officer and a protected species. Uh... Let's read more about Paul Buck. That was his nickname, Buck. Paul Buck Higgins. Hmm. Hard, ruthless and cunning, Buck Higgins rose fast and was made a detective very young because he got results. Mm. No one cared how. He was soon tied up in systematic corruption that effectively made him a silent partner to a murderous drug dealer running illegal brothels. Apart from brothel protection money, Higgins would extort cash from sex workers. He was the most dangerous of a cell of rogue cops running hot in the crime squads. Higgins and another notorious policeman, unnamed because he is still alive, terrorised and robbed brothel owners and drug dealers while protecting those who paid huge bribes. The fact that Higgins and his partner survived so long suggests that some in the chain of command turned a blind eye. Oh, yeah. After all, the rogues got information as well as money from their pet crooks, notably Jeffrey Lamb and, and drug dealer Dennis Mr. Death Allen, oldest and baddest of granny evil Kath Pettingill's doomed brood. Yeah, the, the, the Pettingill clan. So tell, me, tell me about granny evil. Tell well, me about Gran- Granny Evil. Granny Evil was the title of a book. I think Adrian Tame uh, wrote the book, and it was called Granny Evil, and it was a study of her life and of her and of her children. Um, Dennis Allen was the oldest, known as Mister Death, because he would invite people around to his home. He had homes actually in Stevenson Seat, Richmond, and then kill them. That's not very nice. He shot a bloke. He shot a bloke dead for for playing with his hi fi. What? Uh, Fuck, uh, I'd a be very dead. very crazy man. He used to take pure amphetamine. And he would be up for eight or nine days without sleep. Oh. So sleep deprived, psychosis everywhere. Yeah. He had a girlfriend that he chained to a washing machine in a laundry. Oh my God. Uh, he, he'd take about 12 Valium and then sleep for two hours. And then he was back up and at it again. Uh, I feel like he should be, he should have died. Uh, well, he did. He did oh, die good. prematurely, which is probably a very, very good thing. His brother, Peter Allen, the only other Allen in, in the brood, uh, not the cabaret singer, I must, no, uh, I must no. add, uh, was a, a serious drug dealer uh, on his own. Dennis Allen was probably the biggest 
shall we say, not street level dealer, but the biggest wholesaler of heroin in Melbourne uh, in the 70s and 80s. So he had extraordinary wealth. Like I say, he bought up a whole range of houses in Stevenson Street, Richmond, which is now called Cremorne because it's very lovely down by the river. But in those oh. days, it, it wasn't. It was sort of working co- working man's cottages and things like that. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's fair enough. Some of the other surviving brothers were involved uh, well, uh, shall we say, I and mean, most of them are dead now, um, uh, but they were involved in the Wall Street murders, uh, acquitted a trial, but everyone fully accepts that. And they, the execution of those two young police officers, Tynan and Eyre, uh, was an execution-style uh, killing in retaliation for uh, the death of one of their friends, Graham Jensen, who was shot dead by police. Uh, while scoping out a uh, a bank in the outer eastern suburbs of Melbourne, so it's this entire behavior. sort of network revolved around Pettingill. She was terrified of Alan. There's a very famous photo, and many of our listeners will have seen it. It was a Christmas card. It was basically "Happy Christmas from the Pettingills." And, and there's Dennis Allen. There's a guy there who can't be identified who <laughs> looks like he's just walked out of church but looks really happy being there. And then he's standing next to Dennis. Dennis has got a gun out and he's just pointed it to his mum's head. Oh, uh, that. And, yeah. And there's, there's another person on Pettingill's side. It's like, Merry Christmas from the Pettingill family. Jesus. Just unbelievable. They had they, – they, they, uh, Kath brought them all up. She was a prostitute. She lost an eye in a knife fight. So she's quite <laughs> frightening to look at. Uh, and um, and uh, they grew up um, – certainly Dennis and Peter grew up in West Heidelberg, Olympic Village, which is uh, – um, a fairly impoverished area of Melbourne to this day, to a to a degree, um, and uh, you know they were subject to brutality from their so-called fathers. I mean, like I say, that none of them, besides Dennis and Peter, shared a surname, uh, and uh, their, their their deadbeat dads would beat on them. There's one story of one of the Pettingill clan coming home with a. Uh, with a bad case of sunburn, and uh, the the uh, deadbeat dad had warned him not to get sunburned. So the punishment was that he would cover his arms, roll cello tape across his arms, sunburned arms, and then rip the tape off. Charming. So it's this kind of. It's no wonder that these people were really, really bad. Yeah, yeah, it checks out. I mean, like, um, I've just seen some photos of um of uh, Granny Evil here, and uh, yeah, I wouldn't want to. She, yeah. she lives down in Venus Bay now in, in, in Gippsland and um, uh, she retired there and I believe she's very popular with uh, with the locals. So I think she calls the bingo or she used to. She'd be a fair old age now but she used to call the bingo and they all sort of loved her um, um, and she's rough, rough and tough, no doubt about that. But but look, I think she was even she was even frightened of, of Dennis and um, Dennis was called Mr Death, as I say, because he would invite people around to kill them. Nice. People would come around and kill him at his home. And, and there were at friendly. least three murders. And and two of them are chopped up in the backyard. Yeah. I guess if you own the next door neighbor's house, then no one can really see it. Yeah. Right? yeah. Very strange behavior. Wouldn't Don't endorse this at all. It's terrible. It's likely that some of the bribe money Higgins and his mate collected flowed upwards, at least as far as the then commander, Phil Fat Harry Bennett, subsequently alleged to be corrupt. Oh, yes, he was. Yeah. Um, Not alleged. Uh, Phil Bennett was, you know, very se- very senior copper and bent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, yeah. Was that ever uh, made official, or is uh, it just all, everyone all, knows? All, all, all posthumous. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sweet. Well, look, there were other senior police too suspected of conv- condoning these sort of harmless raids on friendly brothels to sort of keep up appearances. 
you know, make sure it looks like the law's being, uh, you know. Looks like they're doing, yeah, looks like they're doing their job. Doing their job, yeah. Yeah, it well, checks out. Uh, Andrew Rule didn't name uh, Higgins' mate, but the uh, but that mate, um, uh, well, that's because that man was still alive, and and and, and, ah. uh, and the Rule wrote his article. The, the the mate was actually Brian the Skull Murphy, very famous name in 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 Melbourne. Um, um, shall we say a long catalogue of colourful police behaviour mm-hmm. from Brian Murphy? Murphy died just two months ago. He oh, can okay. be named now without threat of defamation. Dead man don't sue. I don't want to say that we're just doing this because he's dead, but we couldn't have done it any any other way. And Andrew Rule sort of acknowledges that in the piece, but he's just talking about Higgins and his mate. Yeah, and it was able to get through through the legal process and be published. Uh, now Murphy is dead. Murphy was a force of nature within Vic Pohl and given extraordinary authority despite his relatively low rank of, of detective sergeant. He was head of the now defunct consorting squad and into whatever was going on. So if you're in the consorting squad, you are just going you're going to the races, you're going to the pub, you're going to where crooks are. Yeah. Where crooks are associating often because that was an offence. Consorting was an offence. It's ah, no longer an offence. Okay. Because and, and quite rightly because because it, it would lead to corruption. Yeah, okay. So this Brian Murphy, who was a teetotaler, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but uh, was a teetotaler, would spend his life going around every criminal haunt there was. Um, senior police often excused his many excesses and dodgy behaviour because he provided police with intel on the movement of many of Victoria's most incorrigible crim- criminals. And both he and Higgins were said to be on a grand each a day from Whoa. Dennis, Mr. Death Allen, Money. to keep the law from his door. Bargain. Mr. Death, given that name, as I say, because uh, he had the habit of inviting people over to kill him, uh, was a huge heroin trafficker and ultimately became the subject of a police task force, which yep. is very, very strange because they were sitting outside, the task force was sitting outside uh, his home in a uh, in an abandoned factory. Oh, wow. And they were filming every, everything that everything that happened there, and they'd see some really bizarre scenes, including Dennis Allen just popping outside, fire or fire a gun into the into the sky, and but also they would see Higgins and Murphy appearing at the place. Yeah, okay, that's a bit sus. It was a pretty easy guy to survey, by the way, because he didn't often leave the home, and the only time he did leave the home was he, he, he wandered down to the Cherry Tree Hotel. Melbourne people will remember that one in uh, Chapel Street, or I think it's uh, Church Street, uh, Church Street, which becomes Chapel Street, uh, and uh, wander wander into the the cherry tree for his favourite drink, which was a jug of Southern Comfort and Coke. Jesus, it's like speeding off his tits, pure (sighs) amphetamine, and just necking a jug of Southern Comfort and Coke. It's like when Jake orders like the four fried chickens and a Coke. Yes. Four fried chickens and a Coke. I want a jug of Southern Comfort and Coke. Southern Comfort is Thanks. such an awful, awful oh, drink, by it's the like way. like maple syrup and oh, it's so sweet and sticky. Anyway. It's disgusting. So while he was being watched by one group of police, Higgins and Murphy were seen entering Allen's home on numerous occasions. Lots and this times. is mm. a huge deal because why the fuck are they there? Yeah, the task force are going, what are these guys doing here? Yeah, like this is not. Not meant to be happening, and there's a whole bunch of things they don't know. The bizarre scene was explained away by Higgins and Murphy that Alan was an informant, which that's mm. a, that's a good story. Who provided information leading to the arrest of numerous armed robbers, just stick up men who, let's face it, they're expendable, right? 
for the most part. Yeah, but it's not true. You know, it, it was it was oh, a lie. So it was, was a bo- lie ah, made up. Okay, this was the only uh, only way to explain the fact that Higgins and Murphy were in close contact with Allen because they're, they're smart. watching. You know, they're, they're, <laughs> there's a smile for the camera because there's yeah. a task force are literally fifty meters away, keeping an eye on you. Yeah, and and there's and there's uh, Murphy and, and Higgins turning up on a regular. Uh, regular basis, they were turning up for their cash, a thousand yes. a day, thousand bucks each. Day. Yeah, and they'd also do other things, Joel. They'd, they'd, they'd do other things like if 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 Alan wanted to go out and commit a bit of violence, a bit of shooting, and even a murder, they would give him police issue guns. Oh fuck! And, and and he would go out and commit these crimes with these guns, sometimes murders, and it was untraceable. The ballistics were untraceable. You see, the gun was never left at the scene. The gun was just simply returned to police. Are they not the police guns not marked or anything? Like you know, do they not have barrel no. markings or anything? So no, no ballistics on it, no Fuck. ballistics on it. So That's well, no, no, no usable ballistics in, in a criminal trial. Fuck. So hell. he was not an informant. I, I, I'd sort of believed for a long time. In fact, we did a tough nut study on Dennis Allen where we we, we went forward and said that he was a an informer and we got one police officer to talk about it and how he had his special little informer's name and all this sort of stuff, but it wasn't true. It was made up. It had to be created. That that fiction had to be created around him. Otherwise, how else to explain the close relationship between Dennis Allen, Mr. Death, yeah. and Paul Higgins and Brian Murphy? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Other than $1,000 a day, which is probably not the best explanation when you're uh, not meant to be doing that. Yeah, it, it was seen actually unrolling $14,000, and that was basically a week's pay for both of them. And this is like, what, like 1980s money, right? No, yeah, like late 70s, early 80s. Late 70s, yeah. early 80s money. So it's real cash. I mean, like, you know, that's when, what, like $2,000 to buy you a car, right? It's a right? lot of money. It's yeah. a lot of money. Yeah. 1000 a day is a lot of money. It's a, um, it's a lot of money now, but, I mean, back then it was real cash. I, I met while well, we were filming Tough Nuts, I met – um, Brian Murphy and I met Paul Higgins. The Higgins meet was fairly short. I didn't know a lot about his background at the time. We interviewed him fairly briefly about some of the more contemporary uh, crooks in Melbourne uh, in and around the sort of um, uh, underworld shootings at the turn of the century. Yeah, um, He wasn't of much use, to be honest, in terms of the interview. <laughs> but, yeah. but Murphy I got to know quite well. And okay. He was quite an engaging character i just looked and checked my phone his number's still in there it's just called skull and 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 his number's still there as i say died a couple of months ago yeah um i went to his home uh on one occasion for a pre-interview and uh, his lovely wife uh uh, his home in albert park (laughs) albert park you know was a bit of a sort of working working man's um uh uh, a place not not uh, the sort of great asset strength that it is now, yeah. but that house would be easily worth $4 million, completely untouched, and you have to wonder how the hell he was able to afford it. Well, yes. we sort of know a bit, don't we? But well, anyway, he raised, uh, I think, five children there with his wife, and she'd shuffle in there with with, um, with uh, fruitcake and cups of tea, uh, and Murph's phone would just never stop ringing. Um, and, and, you know, you, you just have to sit back and wait for him to stop talking. They were always fairly perfunctory conversation. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, all right, I'll be in touch. Bang. Um, and and it would happen all the time. But it sounded a bit crimey by the sounds of and things. He, and he's yeah, oh yeah. Look, he was he was he was still in the middle of the criminal network, and well informed as we went. 
despite you having millions of dollars under his belt. Well, I'm not sure about that. There were no, well, there the were house. no overt displays of wealth. Like a big house that he may have bought for a song back in the 1950s or 60s. Fair, fair, um, fair. But it was a two-story house in Albert Park. So it's it's $4 million and change yeah. uh, just uh, just to even think about that now. Yeah. Um, but that's, you know, that's the luck of the luck of the draw. He, yeah, he grew up in he grew up in uh, inner city Melbourne, so that was kind of his life. Yeah. Um, he, he was given to sort of really um, outlandish statements all of a sudden. And there's one example, and it was probably, I think it was the last time I ever spoke to Murphy, and I decided pretty much on the basis of this conversation I'd had enough of him. And I actually approached him, I asked him, this is over the telephone, I asked him, I said, they got Higgins. He said, did, 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 was there any sign that they were going to come at you? And and he said to me, he said, well, I marched in to the to the Chief Commissioner's office and I told him and he had his mates there and he met assistant commissioners and deputy commissioners and what have you. And and I'm not quite sure who it would have been at the time. It, it may well have been um, uh, old Mick, and I'm just trying to think of his name, um, uh, <clears throat> who was the chief commissioner at the time. But he walked into their offices and and. and, and this is what he told me. He almost certainly didn't do this, but he was just <laughs> telling me this story. He walked out, if you come at me, I'll leave your fucking grandkids in a fucking hessian sack out the front at, the, at your front yard. That's not very nice. And I was like, mate, that's one, you didn't say this. And yeah. two, who's, who's going to get away with that? They would have had him locked up there and then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I got to know them. I got to know he was an engaging sort of fellow, piercing blue eyes, very light coloured blue piercing eyes, uh, and really smart, really crafty, really shrewd, but then given to these sort of, what would you call sort of grandiose sort of statements. He lied to me so many times. Yeah, that's annoying. He lied to me about Ray Mooney. Uh, and and so as we as we've discussed, and I don't want to play on this too too hard. Ray Mooney's paid his debt for the crime he did. And when you yep. ask Ray Mooney, did you do it? And I have done this. Or did you do it? He says, Yes, I did, and I regret yep. it, and I wish I hadn't, but I yep. did. So yep. he's up front. So and that was the only, as far as I know, the only crime he ever really committed. And yep. and um and, and but because uh, because Murphy despised. Uh, Mooney, um, he, he, Murphy would tell us all these sorts of lies. Oh, you know, he's probably breaking into houses. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. He, you know, um, he, actually, I think he played a few games for Collingwood Reserves, Ray Mooney, a uh, very sort of powerfully built athletic guy. Uh, and um, and and so yeah yeah you know at half time he'd be knocking over houses and all this sort of stuff so he yeah, tried to yeah. sort of demonise Ray Mooney to us and yeah, yeah and okay. and, you're, and I and, and and it wasn't at the time that I wanted this but afterwards I went why is he doing that yeah and and what we're going to talk about we'll tell you why yeah yeah it checks out well let's go uh, up north a bit and um, get to Rogerson. Yeah. Roger Rogerson, because what's also known here is that uh, he was providing heroin, which was often pinched from evidence rooms in New South Wales, and then sending it down by bus or sometimes by courier on a plane and into the hands of the uh, well-meaning Mr. Death. Yeah. So Alan yeah, died yonks ago in 1987. That's how he got a lot of his heroin. And, yeah, and- just Rogerson sending him down packets of evidence. Yeah. Fucking dodgy. And it was, a, it was a great little two-way scheme. 
because then he'd say, then he'd say, Rogerson would say to the guys who'd been caught with the heroin in New South Wales, he'd say, you pay me money and I'll make your heroin disappear. Not disappear, but he would replace it with icing sugar or whatever. Okay. And then you just go into where before your trial starts, you, you, you ask, you have your lawyer ask for a toxicology report. Yep. And get, the, get the drugs tested and then find out they're icing sugar, bang, you're away. Oh, you're off. That is just such a and great way of being found corrupt. its way down to Melbourne and into the bloodstream of uh, of uh, of many uh, many many Melburnians. Ah, yeah, we junkies everywhere. Um, so look, it's no surprise when uh, Alan did die in 1987 that it was from his heart collapsing uh, as a result of you know just um, casually injecting amphetamines. Pure just amphetamines. So he, years so he, and years he would, of injecting amphetamines. Pure speed. He would he would inject pure speed into him, and basically his heart was, as you just said, it just broke up. It just, just fell gave apart. Up. Yeah, it just fell apart. Look, I'm he impressed was, that it lasted was, that long. He was facing a number of charges at the time, including a number okay. of murders. Um, his his well, maybe it was uh, the stress that got him, not uh, not the speed. <laughs> not really. At the time, at the time of his uh, at the time of his death. Oh, just shortly before his death, he was due to face trial over. I, it wasn't a murder, but it was another, probably a drug offence. And um, and and look, he found that you know basically Murphy wasn't much use to him anymore, and and Higgins had been rolled. So he did, he wasn't quite sure what to do, and he rang up his lawyer and said, you know, can you see what can be done? He said, well, I don't know if going to be done. So he said, I don't want to go there today. You've got to go there, Dennis. <laughs> so he just rang through a bomb threat. No, oh, the magistrate's oh, cool. Classic. Yeah. That's great. Someone did that at um during the HSC at our school. Um, <laughs> obviously, won't name it's a them. Pretty serious way of saying I don't want to be there today. Oh yeah, yeah. It was just one of those things where it's like, well, I guess the exams are off, and we're all going to line up on the uh, on the field. Good old Barrenjo High School. What a what a fun place. So into this nest of vipers in Melbourne came Ray the Lizard Loxley, came from Sydney. And when he wasn't working as a sitter in the embassy brothel, he pulled beers and sometimes worked the door at Mickey's Disco, also in St Kilda. I haven't seen a photo of, of Ray Loxley. It's not so much about – I've seen his tombstone. Uh, yeah, And that's okay. basically it. Oh, he was supposed said, he to be young. pretty thick-set guy, pretty thick-set, solidly built guy, but he was more a barman than a bouncer. And, 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 he, was a, and, and he was both at Mickey's Disco. Now, Mickey's yeah. Disco was a den oh, of iniquity, you know, yeah. more, night, more nightclub than disco, but it was a criminal haunt. Anyone yeah. who was anyone in the criminal world would cross the threshold at some point or other. Alphonse Gangitano used to go there. Any crim from that era that you can think of uh, uh, was was would cross the threshold at some point or another at Mickey's Disco. Um, uh, boxer, I remember boxer Barry Michaels, uh, telling me about the huge fights that he used to see outside. And these weren't your average nightclub skirmishes. These are hardened guys going hammer and tongs. Yeah, 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 that's it, yeah. Um, first radio. Mick talks about uh, spending some time there. I mean, anyone you can think of. Yeah. Um, and Chris Flannery, after his release from prison in 1977, had worked as a doorman there. And in 1978, Chris Flannery took out a mortgage on his Aspendale home to take a stake in Mickey's, purchasing 10% of it from the owner, well, sort of joint owner, who was Ron the Fat Man Feeney. I'm guessing that was because he was fat? Uh, he was just, he, yeah, see, yeah, yeah, 
Yeah, long story <laughs> short, yeah, uh, a little bit obese. Um, uh, he didn't look like much of a vicious villain, but he was. This is yeah. friendly. He's known to have stabbed Sydney-based crook Jackie Hodder to death at Waterloo Town Hall in Sydney in 1965. That's Ron Feeney. Jackie Hodder was known to have had it falling out with Len McPherson's gang. Now, Feeney was not charged over that murder. In fact, another crook, Charles Chickarees, took the fall, pleading guilty to manslaughter over Hodder's killing for reasons that remain unexplained to this day. I have no <laughs> idea why he would have... Well, he would have fessed up for that. Perhaps he wanted to go in jail. It, 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 but certainly it was Feeney who committed that murder, who, who killed Jackie Hodder. Uh, no doubt about that. And, and Feeney was close to Murphy. So close, in fact, that when Feeney gave evidence in Flannery's trial for the murder of Roger Wilson in 1980, Feeney, under oath, described his relationship with Murphy as his parole officer. Yeah, this is very fruity. So this is like an exchange between Feeney and his lawyer. This is testimony from from uh, the Supreme Court trial, yeah. In the court, yeah. So this is Feeney. We had a pretty close association. Actually, Mr. Murphy was appointed as my parole officer for three years when I got out of jail in New South Wales. The lawyer goes on to ask, you say Mr. Murphy was your parole officer? Yes. Was he at that stage in New South Wales? No, he was in Victoria. So his honour pipes up and just goes... A policeman in Victoria? A policeman in Victoria was your parole officer? Hmm. Uh, yes, I was released from prison on parole in New South Wales from a work release centre. He had to be contacted once a month during my parole period. It was a three-year period starting from 1975. There's a lot wrong with that. There's a There's lot, a his, lot yeah, wrong with His honour took issue. <laughs> you can be a police officer or a parole officer, but you can't be both. No. One. And, and because Feeney had been convicted of offences in New South Wales, that parole officer would have to be in New South Wales, but here for reasons that no one could explain and a, and a Supreme Court justice, in fact, that was Justice Vincent, very, very notable um, uh, justice in Victoria, said, what? What's going on here? What's going on here? Why why is Brian Murphy your parole officer? <laughs> you know, it, it, yeah, it's it, it, it is bizarre. And it's one of those bizarre things that sort of flows around uh, uh Brian the Skull Murphy all the time. So many things that you looked at and go, how did that happen? Yeah, and uh, we turn to Andrew Rule again. The older man, Murphy. So Andrew didn't name Murphy, but we will because we know who he's talking about. The older man, Murphy, was known for dangerous stunts. One was to open the hatch in a South Melbourne police cell door and fire shots through it into the back wall as prisoners cowered. Another trick was to wear a gorilla mask while driving a police car to frighten motorists. <laughs> Thank God he didn't drink. He was crazy enough sober, the retired officer says, outlandish, childish stuff. Yeah. Yeah, crazy, yeah. crazy, crazy. Just a Look, fucking psycho. Neither Murphy nor the serial rapist Higgins did drink, um, but they were at Mickey's Disco a lot. Yeah. And it was around this time that Flannery, as co-owner of Mickey's, discovered Murphy and Higgins were receiving under-the-table payments from Feeney. Murphy often described to me that he worked as a doorman at Mickey's, but that, that was not true. They would hang around the place, often arranging free drinks for their police associates, but they didn't perform any work at the place, security or otherwise. Flannery had a problem with Murphy. He disliked Murphy on reputation. Murphy was known to have killed a criminal or career criminal, Neil Collingburn, 
in custody, in police custody. Collingburn was severely injured after Murphy and another officer responded to what Murphy and others described as, or other police, described as an attack on a junior officer at the Russell Street muster room in 1971. Collingburn died of septicemia after suffering a ruptured duodenum. That's a serious kicking. Mm-hmm. You know, for those unfamiliar with the duodenum, it's the first part of the small intestine that connects to the stomach. So it's round, somewhere between your stomach and your abdomen. It doesn't rupture easily without being pierced. And what we're trying to say here is that a ruptured duodenum is the result of a seriously brutal attack. And the septicemia, well, that's from what's in your duodenum. We'll leave you to figure out what that is. It's poo. It's poo. It's it poo, goddammit. Yeah, it's going to poison him and poison the old Collingburn. It's fucking uh, disgusting. Yeah. It'll be such a horrific way to die. Ugh, poo poisoning. Anyway, uh, Murphy and a junior police officer were charged with manslaughter but acquitted at trial. Two witnesses, Ian Ravel Carroll and Tom Canillan, gave evidence at the trial that Murphy had attacked Collingburn and beaten him senseless. Duodenum, man, fucked him up. But the evidence from police witnesses was accepted by the jury and, uh, you yeah, know, the rest was history. Uh, yeah, Brian Murphy was returned to uh, to duty. His suspension get, get lifted. And he was, given, he was given all the back pay that he missed out on. <laughs> now, <laughs> like he fucking one, needed it. You mentioned Tom Canellan, who I don't know all that well, but Ian Revel Carroll is a really interesting character and I don't want to get into a too long a tangent. Ah, yeah. But, but Ian Revel Carroll was, which, how, we, how do we put him, um, a, a career criminal, uh, an armed robber. Yeah. Um, he was a collector of vintage cars. Oh, um, nice. Um, but he was also involved in a, a shootout with Russell Mad Dog Cox. Um, and uh, we don't quite know what it was all over, but uh, he was involved in a shootout. Cox was shot, I believe, in the leg, and, and Cox in turn had shot. Carol dead. Now, Russell Cox is still alive, but he was tried over the murder of Ian Revel Carroll and um, was acquitted on um, on self-defence grounds. And uh, when the police arrived uh, at Cox's house, he was in, he was on the run. He was in, he was, uh, uh, had been Australia's most wanted man for 11 years. Um, yeah. When they came across his house, uh, they found a lot of blood there. Uh, they found Ian Revel Carroll dead. Uh, Cox had gone, fled with his uh, uh, with his uh, nurse lover, uh, oh. and remained staunch with him throughout his entire career, throughout his entire life. Uh, and and Cox had fled with obviously quite a lot of money that he had uh, obtained from uh, uh, um, from being uh, naughty. Yeah, from being a bit naughty. We won't go into it any further. But but he left <laughs> a lot of stuff behind. And what it was was kind of like the Bunnings. The Bunnings armed robbery kit. You know, there were, oh, there, yeah, there I were, imagine that. You know, makeup, wigs, you know, all sorts of disguises, all sorts of things like that. There were books on stage makeup. There were, there, okay. were, there, there were ways of basically changing his identity. He'd been, as I say, been on the run for 11 years. So Ian Revel Carroll was one of those who witnessed the savage beating of Neil Collingburn. Um, but, uh, by Murphy, um, but uh, they, uh, but uh, the jury did not believe Ian Revel Carroll or Tom Canellans either. Interesting. Collingburn was a mate of Flannery's, and Flannery, you know, the deceased, and Flannery did not accept the verdict of the jury. Fair to say, from that moment in, Murphy and Flannery were bitter enemies. Uh. And they had a magnificent stoush apparently at Mickey's over that, over the okay. Neil Collingburn thing. 
So these were not these they, they were not friendly. And no. and you also have to <laughs> please understand the sort of man Chris Flannery was. He would never take a backward step ever. And even if it, he was outnumbered, or if it was indeed very serious, very violent police, not, you know, he just he, he just never would take a backward step. Yeah, yeah, okay. Now, the That's enmity, worth knowing. The enmity grew when Flannery discovered Feeney's under-the-table payments to Murphy and Higgins, and yes. he barred them again. <laughs> like, oh I like Chris Flannery a lot because he <laughs> because he said he, 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 he fronted Murphy and then he fronted Higgins. He said, "I know what you're doing." They were getting two hundred bucks a two hundred bucks a week um, to just sit around um, and uh, to just sit around and do nothing. Yeah, and, and he said, yeah, "That's it. No more payments. No more under the table payments for you guys." There was an occasion there where a couple of police officers that were with Murphy and Higgins had caused a bit of a ruckus, and 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 uh, Flannery walked up to Murphy and said, "You're going to deal with that." Yeah, and, this is a job. <laughs> and he said, "Don't you tell me what to do." And Oof. he said, "This is why. Why are you getting paid? You know, get yeah. so, so so Flannery was a." Like I say, almost pathological hatred of coppers. Yeah, okay. Uh, and this is really important as we go. Um, Feeney told Flannery at the time that he was playing with fire, but Flannery stuck to his gun, so to speak, you know. Yeah, yeah. Barred Murphy and Higgins from, from barred these two corrupt coppers from coming to coming to the place and no more money. And this this arose, we know that this occurred because it, it, it arose in testimony in the Wilson murder trial where Flannery and, and two others were charged with uh, the murder of uh, businessman Roger Wilson in 1980. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, Feeney gave this evidence under cross-examination. So this is like a back and forth um, between the lawyer and Feeney in the courtroom. So the lawyer starts off, did Mr Flannery work on the door of Mickey's for some time? And Feeney says he worked as a barman more than a doorman. Did he on occasions have disagreements with Mr. Murphy? Yes. And you told us Murphy had a hate for Flannery? We had quite a few differences along the way. <laughs> That's crim speak for That's yeah. a euphemism. There were yeah. problems. <laughs> and you believe that Flannery had done things that were harmful to your interests? Yes. And as a result, you ended up going to Russell Street with a story about Flannery and the death of Roger Wilson that was false? Well, that wasn't the only story that I told was false. And there was a, and he's cut off, maybe so, Mr. Feeney, but did you go to Russell Street and give an account of a conversation that you told the police you had with Flannery and was it, it was all false? That is right. And you did that after some discussion with Detective Sergeant Murphy. That's right. He wanted you to make allegations against Flannery. Yes. And that's a big deal. Mr. Murphy had some part in the running of this Mickey's Disco? In some type of way, yes. Well, did he have a part in running it? Well, he never really had much to say in the running of it, the paying of the bills, but he had a lot to say in respect of who came to the place. I suggest to you that it went further than that, Mr. Feeney. I suggest to you he was in receipt of income from the place, wasn't he? There had been occasions where there had been a lot of money paid out to police, yes. In particular about Mr. Murphy. To your knowledge, was he in receipt of income from Mickey's Disco or not? He had received money from there, yes. And without naming people, there were other police detectives like Mr. Murphy who were in a similar position? That's correct. And Flannery took exception to that, didn't he? Yes, him and his wife. 
and he made it clear to Mr Murphy that neither he nor other police were welcome at Mickey's disco, didn't he? That's right. And that's what started the hatred Murphy had for Flannery, was it not? I take it that's what it was. Murphy complained about it, did he not, to you? Yes. Really lays out the whole thing there. Yes, it does. It explains this this bitter enmity and how Murphy has responded to it. Now, we're talking about the murder. I just don't want to break away too far and, and, and drag people off into another tangent, but we are mm-hmm. talking about Flannery being tried for the murder of Roger Wilson, something I believe, a murder that I believe he did commit. But the more I look at that too, I start wondering about whether he was fitted up. And clearly Murphy has got Feeney in to make allegations about that, that would support uh, a murder charge in the Roger Wilson business. We're yeah. dealing with the Ray Loxley murder, and, and all of this is the build-up. On May 11, 1979, Ray Loxley, sitter at the embassy, a brothel under the protection of Murphy and Higgins, and a doorman at Mickey's was shot dead in Menai, southwest Sydney. Yeah. I had always presumed that Loxley had been killed elsewhere, possibly in Melbourne, and his body dumped, but that's not true. He was shot dead in Menai. Yeah, yeah, because there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons for that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Loxley's body was discovered the following day at midday on May 12, 1979. A New South Wales forensic officer determined the time of death was approximately midday on May 11, 1979, which was a Friday. Yeah, so the the, the body is the body has been discovered by by the forensic officer, well, not discovered, but but come across by the forensic officer and it been reported perhaps elsewhere. So it had been twenty four hours. It's really important. So the body was left there around midday on the Friday, the eleventh, and twenty four hours later is when the forensic officer first examined the body of Ray Loxley. Makes it very difficult for him to have been taken from Melbourne. Um, we'll get to that. And then came the first of the verbals. Now, a verbal, if you're young, you won't even know what a verbal is. <laughs> um, in police parlance, it was a, it was a, the creation of false statements, unsigned statements, either by an alleged perpetrator or it was done by police in a way that would indicate the guilt of, um, and then would be a sworn signed statement by police that, that would indicate the guilt of a, a, an alleged perpetrator. Um, it was. It, it's no longer accepted in evidence anywhere in Australia, as far as I know. Um, but it was in those days. Roger Rogerson, for example, in New South Wales, was the king of the verbals, and people people go away for eleven or twelve years Jeez. on verbal on verbal confessions that they had not made, and it would be presented. An unsigned statement would be presented. They say, "Why didn't he sign it?" Ah, oh, well, he, after he after he gave me the evidence, he didn't want to sign it. So yeah, we just, yeah. here it is. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. in this matter, Ray Loxley's murder became the first of the verbals, a practice common among police in New South Wales and Victoria at the time. The New South Wales Police Detective Sergeant Lyndon Reed interviewed Flannery on May 15. That's three days after the body was found, Loxley's body was found, at Flannery's home, three days after Loxley's bodies was found, as I say. I'll do yeah. that again, sorry. New South Wales Police Detective Sergeant Lyndon Reed interviewed Flannery on May 15, 1979 at Flannery's home, three days after Loxley's body was found. And Reed's statement reads, We went to the front door at 48 Laura Street, Aspendale, where we were met by a couple that I now know to be the accused Christopher Dale Flannery and his wife, Mrs Kathleen May Flannery. The accused said, come in. 
We all then entered the lounge room where I said, we are investigating the death of Raymond Francis Loxley, whose body was found in bushland south of Sutherland in Sydney last Saturday. He died as a result of a number of gunshot wounds. Mr. Flannery said, yes, I heard about it. I said, what I would like to do is take you to a police station where I could formally interview you about your knowledge of the deceased. And the accused said, no, I don't want to go to a police station. I will talk to you here. And I said, all right, but we need to interview you separately. Miss Flannery said, that's all right. We'll go out the back. And no, then she left. That's Kath Flannery, his wife. Yes, his wife, yeah. Going, yeah. <laughs> and she left the room with Detective Lawson and Gray. We sat in the lounge room and I said, I will make some notes of our conversation. And the accused said, no way. If you make notes, I won't talk to you. We will just talk generally or the whole thing's off. I said to the accused, Flannery, where are you employed? And he said, at Mickey's Disco in St Kilda. I said, how long have you been employed there? And he said, about three months. I said, what do you do there? And he said, I'm a barman. I said, do you work there every day? And he said, I work from 8 p.m. to 3 a.m. every night except Sunday. And I said, did you know about the deceased Raymond Francis Loxley? And he said, yes, I met him at Mickey's about three months ago. And I said, what do you know him as? And he said, Ray or the lizard. His nickname. I said, how did you get your job at Mickey's Disco? And he said, I got it through Ron Feeney. I knew him in Sydney. I said, whereabouts in Sydney? And he said, from Mickey's Disco in Sydney. I said, do you know who runs Mickey's Disco in Melbourne? He said, yes, Ron Feeney, Bill Johnston, and Fred Lapp. I said, when is the last time you saw the deceased Loxley? And he said, last Thursday at lunchtime. I said, did Loxley say anything to you about going to Sydney? And he said, he told me around this time he was going to Sydney to get some money. In fact, he even asked me for $3,000 to put in, but I would not be in it. I've never gone in for that sort of thing, and I would not deal in drugs. I said, do you know a man named David Jones in Sydney? And he said, yes, Ray has a cousin, Spooks Jones. And Ray often used to talk about Spooks and his mate Steve. I reckon the three of them could be connected with a drug deal, but this is only a guess. I said, what sort of bloke was Loxley? And he said, he used to bullshit a lot about doing hits for heavy crims in Sydney and the Gold Coast. He told me he'd done a hit in the Gold Coast, but I think that was bullshit. I said, did you go to work last Thursday night at Mickey's Disco? And he said, no, I was sick. I had the flu and didn't go to work. I was home and a playwright came over and stayed till about 1am and we drove to Mickey's for a drink. And I said, who else did you see at Mickey's? And he said, Tony was on the door and Jerry Elbows was in the place. And I said, what was the name of the playwright you were with? And he said, I won't tell you that. If it becomes important later on, I'll tell you his name. And I said, do you know any person who held a grudge against Loxley? He said, no. And I said, have you ever seen Loxley in possession of a firearm? And he said, no. The only bloke I've seen with a gun is Conscurus and he's got a 22 pistol. A short time later, we left the house and the defendant said to us, if I hear anything further, I'll let you know. About 9.30 that night with Detective Lawson, I saw Flannery again at Mickey's Disco at St Kilda and I said, have you remembered or heard anything further that might assist us with this inquiry? And he said, no, I only heard it was all a drug deal between Ray, Spooks and Steve. I've heard word that Ray's mucked up a few deals and his mouth is too big. And I said, do you know whether Spooks or Steve actually killed Ray or did they get someone to do it? And he said, I don't know that. Detective Dawson and I returned to Sydney on the night of 16th May, 1979. Okay. So the playwright in question, in case you were wondering, was Ray Mooney. 
Yeah. And Ray's confirmed that he spent uh, basically the evening with Flannery uh, on that on that afternoon, on that, that evening, and then they both went to Mickey's later that night, and then they both went back to uh, Flannery's home in Aspendale, and uh, and Ray Mooney spent the night there with him. So yeah. um, this is the night before the murder. The murder actually occurred, in fact, the morning of the murder, if we talk about Ray Mooney leaving the Flannery house at 8.30 that morning. So later Mooney spoke to Flannery, who denied saying anything besides providing the alibi evidence he provided to Reid. So what we know about Flannery, what we've just been talking about here with Flannery, tells you that this statement is bullshit. Yeah. Right? That most of this statement is bullshit. Why yeah. do I think it was a verbal? Well, Ray Mooney told me so, and I've no reason to disbelieve him. But yeah. look further, and he's a hard man who really has an extensive criminal background and an almost pathological hatred of police. Yep. And, and ask yourself why Flannery would be adding in all sorts of extraneous information about drug deals gone wrong and coughing on workmates who, of his who toted a, a, a .22 caliber pistol. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Fl- Flannery is not going to be friendly with police. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Now, uh, this sort of relates to, well, to Reed, the police officer, Lyndon Reed, Detective Sergeant Lyndon Reed, had, um, had some form. Uh, oh. Well, he he was well. He and Flannery knew each other pretty well. Okay, right. And and Flannery was arrested quite famously in West Ride in 1978, West Ride Railway Station, by Roger Rogerson. Lyndon Reed was uh, was was also there. Rogerson would describe the arrest as the most violent thing he'd ever he'd ever experienced, which seemed to be a nonsense. Um, Flannery was arrested for an armed robbery that he did commit. In in uh, in Perth, but he's later acquitted of. And so uh, Rogerson made up this big story, but the police had basically um, seriously outnumbered Flannery and another crook by the name of Archie Butterley, um, who was another career armed robber. Uh, and 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 they take him back to the police station. They take Flannery back to the police station, and Flannery, like I say, was a willing guy. He's he's throwing a punch at Lyndon Reed and break his jaw. Oh wow. That's a good one. Uh, yeah. And, and, and anyway, so so there's a little bit of background there, and I and, I, and I'm just asking listeners to, to to think about that statement that Lyndon Reed provided. Now, besides alibi evidence, Flannery would have given them nothing, yeah. just nothing. Yeah. And three months would go by until Flannery was taken to the police station and interviewed again in relation to the murder of Ray Loxley, and this time there was a verbal. From Brian Murphy, they're all fucking having a go. And the state right. from so this is a statement that that Murphy prepared. Yeah. So Murphy goes on to say, about eight fifty p.m. on Thursday, 9th August, nineteen seventy nine, I saw Christopher Dale Flannery sitting in the centre of the muster room of the homicide office. At the time, he was having a conversation with Detective Sergeant Worsley and Detective Duff, and was making notes in his notebook. At the completion of that conversation, Sergeant Worsley and Detective Duff moved away from where Flannery was sitting, and Flannery said to me, can I see you for a minute, Brian? I just want to pull you up there. Sorry. I just want to pull you up there. Detective Sergeant Worsley and Detective Duff were New South Wales homicide squad detectives. Yep. Because, of course, Ray Loxley's body had been found in in Menai. Yep. Yep, that checks out. So he says, can I see you for a minute, Brian? Flannery, right? We've just gone through this, this deep... Enmity between Murphy and Flannery. 
They hate each other. They hate each other. And he's saying, let's have a chat. Can we have a, can we have a chat, please, Brian? Yeah, so this does sound like bullshit. So I said, being Murphy, do you want to talk to me by yourself or with these fellows, indicating Duff and Worsley? And he said, just you and me. It's very convenient. I then sat down with Flannery and he said to me, what am I going to do? And I said, what about, Chris? And he said, the Sydney Jacks are interviewing me over the murder of the lizard. And I said, what are you going to do about it? And he said, I don't want to be charged with murder. I'll wear a manslaughter. What can you do to help me? Appealing to his enemy. And I said, I can do nothing, Chris. I'll have a talk to the detectives from New South Wales, but I will tell you this. In this state, if there was a shooting like this, they would charge you with murder first, and it would be up to the Crown Law Department to see what they would do after that. And he said, what am I going to do? And I said, just hang on a minute. As a result of what you have told me, I've got to tell you this, Chris. Anything that you tell me about this murder may be later given in evidence at a court. Do you understand? And he said, yes. No, he did it. He fucking did it. I said, do you want to tell me what you did? And he said, I don't know what to say. The lizard was hassling the girls at the parlor and he was trying to undermine Feeney. And I said, if you tell me about it, I'll have to tell the detectives from Sydney. And he said, that's what I'm afraid of. Do you think Worsley would make a manslaughter if I told him what happened? And I said, I don't know. I'll have to talk to him and see what he'll do. I can't make any promises. And he said, do your best, Brian. I know that I can trust you. Oh, fuck. I said, have they got much on you? And he said, I don't know. The one thing I'm worried about is the lizard and I stopped for petrol at a garage on the way up and Ray called a bloke over and introduced me to him. I only hope he can't identify me. I don't think he can because I cover my face a bit. And at that point, Flannery started to cry. And he said, what the fuck am I going to do about the kids? And I said, look, you're not even charged yet. And he said, I know what you mean, Brian, but if they pick me out at the garage, I'm fucked. And I said, I'll have to talk to Worsley and see what he's going to do. At this point of time, Mrs. Kathleen Flannery, the wife of Christopher Dale Flannery, entered the room with a woman named Mrs. Jenny Feeney. And Mrs. Flannery said to her husband, what are you crying for? And Flannery said, nothing. Miss Flannery said, what's been going on? And I said, we've been talking. Miss Flannery and Mrs. Feeney then spoke to Christopher Dale Flannery and I went and had a conversation with Detective Sergeant Worsley. I then returned to where Chris Flannery was sitting and I said to him, I've seen Detective Sergeant Worsley and he won't make any decision tonight. Did you tell him that you wanted a solicitor before you speak to him further? And he said, yes, I don't want to tell him too much. I don't know him. All I told him was that I drove him to Sydney and we had an argument. And I said, leave it go tonight then, and he will see you with your solicitor tomorrow. As a result of this, I then had a conversation with Detective Sergeant Worsley. Yeah. Bullshit. So that's the statement of Brian Murphy, the man who despises Flannery, and (laughs) Flannery in turn despises him. He was crying. Where we where we get the statement, do your best, do your best, Brian, that Flannery, that he says this was a man who prepared to Prepared to give this evidence in a courtroom, Brian Murphy was to say, do your best, Brian. I know that I can trust you. <laughs> There's a lot going on there. Chris it's Flannery so crying? What? Yeah, I know. This is a man who's been belted, you know, the, have the living suitcase belted out of him in Ace Division. This is a tough, hard man. This guy doesn't just burst into tears. No. Uh, do your best, Brian. I know I can trust you. Give oh, me a God. break. The entire statement was cooked up in the mind of Murphy. The witness, the so-called mechanic at a service station, was in Tarkata, which is one of the 
in the towns north of Albury okay. in New South Wales, and the so-called mechanic there has never produced a trial, never produced a trial. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Flannery wasn't there. Yeah. Flannery was in Melbourne. Yeah. Flannery wasn't driving up to Sydney. Exactly. And that was all in 1979. Flannery would not be charged for this murder, by the way, despite the verbals, despite the statement from Murphy, the statement from uh, from the New South Wales copper. Flannery would not be charged for another three years. He was arrested famously for this murder, for the murder of Loxley, outside the Victorian Supreme Court after his acquittal for the murder of Roger Wilson. He was arrested by Billy Duff. And the arresting officer, Billy Duff, was uh, fans of Blue Murder will know as a Roger Rogerson sidekick who was pushed out of the force for his role in planning the importation of significant amounts of heroin with Rogerson from Thailand via PNG. Good money. Flannery did not testify in his trial for the murder of Ray Loxley, but an unsworn statement was submitted to the jury, and it read, I would like to start by first telling you I am not guilty of this offence. Three police said I jumped up in the witness box and said I said certain things to them. They are telling lies and the evidence is false. This whole rotten thing just turned into some kind of nightmare. I'm not guilty of any murder. I didn't kill anyone, and I didn't tell the police that I drove Loxley into Sydney. That is a lie. I don't know who killed Loxley. I believe that I have been intimidated and victimized by the police because of Detective Murphy's lust for money and his association with Mickey's disco and his personal dislike of me. I believe Detectives Worsley and Duff were recruited by Murphy to support him in this matter. Before I was ever charged, when I was first interviewed by police, just like everyone else that had known Loxley, I told them truthfully about my movements on the 10th and the 11th of May, 1979. I told them how they could check that information and who they could check it with to verify what I was saying was the truth. They didn't even bother to. Later, when it suits them, they turn around and say I had told two different detectives a different story. And I never. I had only ever met Mr. Loxley on 12 occasions at Mickey's Disco. He was never a personal friend of mine. He was an acquaintance. I'd met thousands of people at Mickey's Disco, and he was one of those. He had been to my home on a couple of occasions to look at a stereo I was selling. He was just an acquaintance. He was not a friend, and I certainly did not drive him to Sydney, and I certainly did not kill him. I just want to interrupt the statement, Ed. It's a long statement, so perhaps it's good for you to have a breather. Um, <laughs> I've got to be here. Don't worry. I'm good. It, it, what's missing there? What's missing there? And, and if we go back to Murphy's verbal, what's missing there is the embassy um, brothel connection. Flannery has no connection with the embassy brothel. Yeah. Murphy and Higgins, they have a they connection. Have- yeah, yeah, yeah. With the okay. embassy brothel. That's interesting. Have a sip of beer. Off off we go. This is Chris Flannery in his own words, Joel. We bought into the disco in May 1979 after getting a second mortgage in our home in Aspendale. When we bought into Mickey's, we found that as practice, the cash profits from the door sales for the Friday and Saturday evenings were split up between the three owners, that is the Laps, the Feenies, and us. There were problems at the disco, and from the beginning, I clashed with Detective Murphy. He spent a lot of time there, and Feeney was very thick with Detective Murphy. We never hit it off, and he didn't like me. He didn't like me working there, much less ending up a part owner in the place. I'd never met Murphy before I had started working at Mickey's Disco, even though I'd heard a lot about him, which made me dislike and distrust him. Shortly after I started there, we had a pretty bad argument because I had heard things about the death of a man named Neil Collingburn, who died whilst in police custody. I accused Murphy of being involved in this, and he denied it. I didn't believe him. And there was a pretty heated argument. 
We never like one another and always distrusted one another. See, the trust comes up a lot, which is interesting from what was said earlier in that statement. Feeney told me he had to pay Murphy and another policeman named Paul Higgins $200 a week to be able to survive at the nightclub. And the crunch came one night when there were a couple of drunken policemen there, blind drunk and hassling the customers. And I said to Murphy, well, you're the police. You come and fix it up. And he said, don't put me in any positions. And I said, what are you getting paid $200 a week for? And he said, try and stop it and you'll find out. I immediately sacked him, called the other policeman Paul Higgins over and sacked him also. And they immediately went running to Feeney, who approached me and told me that I was in over my head and didn't know what I was doing. So I stuck to my guns, and as it turned out, it's the silliest thing I've ever done. Yeah, Yeah, that can happen. It was only shortly after that my house in Aspendale was raided by the police. I was taken to the Homicide Squad offices in Russell Street, Melbourne, and I refused to talk to Detectives Worsley and Duff as I told them I wanted to see a solicitor. Detective Murphy did come in later that night, and I asked him what he was doing there, and he said Ron Feeney had sent him. And I said to him, I don't want to talk to you. I've got nothing to say to you, which is much more what Flannery is like. This Mm -hmm. this checks out. Or at least words to that effect. I'm not quite sure. He said, let's put our differences aside. He said, you know the lizard was a lunatic? He said, if you give us the gun, I can get it down to manslaughter for you. And I told him to go and get fucked. And I apologize for language, but I did. I said I wanted to see a solicitor, but I never saw anyone. Murphy's evidence he's given in evidence is a pack of lies. His suggestion he was not biased against me and that I trusted him is utter nonsense. Mm -hmm. I'm the one who stopped him getting his $200 a week from Mickey's and he was also investigated by a Bureau of Criminal Intelligence about the money. Now, I want to tell you about the 10th and 11th of May, 1979. On the 10th, I wasn't feeling well as I had the flu. I stayed in bed till that six o'clock. I got up. It was raining and cold and I felt no better. I rang Jerry Elboz, the nominee of Mickey's Disco at seven o'clock and told him I wouldn't be in for work. He was pretty annoyed about the whole thing because I hadn't given him much notice, and it was a big deal to him because it was the first night of a new floor show. Later on that evening, a friend of mine, Ray Mooney, a playwright, rang me and asked me if he could come over to discuss some background material for a play he was writing. I didn't really feel like it, but I said, okay. He came over, we had a few drinks and a discussion, and at about 12 o'clock, I told him I thought I would go down to Mickey's Disco, even if it was only for half an hour or something, just to give them a bit of support. He asked me if he could come with me, and I said yes. We arrived at Mickey's Disco sometime after 12 o'clock. There were a number of people there that I knew. There was Jerry Elboz. There was his wife, Megan. There was also a choreographer for the new show, The Dancers. My brother was there, Ian McLean, and his girlfriend, Goldie. It was the first time that I'd met her and numerous other people that I can't remember the names. We stayed for about an hour or two, and we left and went home. We had a few drinks and Ray stayed on the couch that night and I went to bed. He left around 8.30 a.m. Shortly after that, a neighbor came in, a woman named Bev Sexton, as Kathy and her usually do shopping every Friday morning. They didn't this Friday because Kathy was waiting for a dressmaker to arrive, a woman named Gisela Holt. She was doing some sewing for Kathy and taking up the drapes in the lounge room or something. She arrived, she was introduced to Bev Sexton, and then Bev left. She was going to get some stuff from the chemist from my throat. On the Friday, that is the 11th of May, Kathy and the children and I went to my mother's for dinner. We had dinner at my mother's, and then I left for work around 8.30pm. I first learned of the Loxley death on Saturday the 12th of May 1979. The following Monday after the Loxley killing, the police came to my home. I didn't know they were coming, but I invited them in. I understood they were interviewing anyone who thought they may have known Loxley, 
and I told the police what I've just told you. I explained my movements on the night of May 10th, 1979. I gave the police the names of the people they could check with to verify that I was at the disco that night, and they never checked. The police spoke to Kathy and I separately, and I wasn't worried about being questioned. I had nothing to hide whatsoever. There and then, the police could easily have found a number of people that were at the disco on Thursday night that could verify that I had been there. Yeah. Let's just get back to Loxley killed on Friday at midday. Yep. Flannery with Mooney until 8.30 in the morning on the Friday. Well, that's it. It's an 11-hour drive in those days to Sydney yeah. from Melbourne. I just want to just remind our listeners about that. And these, and, and, and on top of that, up till about 2 o'clock in the morning, 10 hours before Ray Loxley was murdered, an estimated time around midday, Flannery was in the company of literally hundreds of people. Yeah, exactly. And a busy, busy nightclub. And well-known, too. And see, and Murphy's verbal would not stand up in court, you know. And the other thing about Murphy that's worth remembering here is that Murphy would rarely give evidence in court in any matter because he would fly off, like the conversations I used to have with him, he would fly off into these sort of really crazy sort of, like I say, sort of grandiose statements, you know, one one statement even more, you know, sort of amplified than the last and, and, and less convincing. So he was not the sort of guy like Rogerson was, for example, who could persuade juries. Yeah, Murphy okay. would go off and to, to get become distracted and become very colourful with his language in the sort of way that a defence counsel would go, hello. Yeah, yeah, we'll whereas Rogerson part. was very smooth and very, um, very, yes. very smart, very charismatic. Yeah. So say. let's just go back to the alibi evidence. We just talked about it briefly. Remember the evidence of a New South Wales forensic expert that declared that Loxley had died on or around midday on Friday 11 May 1979. That's not six hours by either way, by the way. That's an hour or so. And that's determined by putrefaction, ambient um, ambient uh, temperature, uh, the, the amount of clothing the victim was wearing. These sorts of things can be determined very, very quickly. Yeah, forensic science. Not within a six- or 12-hour span, someone who's only been found within 24 hours of of death, uh, but they can be very, very precise with that time. So it's not six hours either way. It might be an hour either way. That would be that would be the, the most you could expect. So it gets worse because the cops messed this up. The New South Wales cops messed this up. They read the forensic experts' report and miscalculated the time of Ray Loxley's death. The report from Dr Gomez, the forensic surgeon, was confusing. He had stated in his autopsy report that the body had been dead for 30 hours, but it was not clear if it was 30 hours from when the autopsy commenced, which is 6 o'clock on the Sunday night, sorry, on the Saturday, Saturday night, or if it was 30 hours from, uh, from when he first came across the body at midday on the Saturday. And the cops got really confused about that. Uh, and so they basically set up an alibi or they set up they tried to set up an alibi pathway that Flannery would not have and they but they buggered up their own time they actually were looking at an alibi at around about six o'clock in the morning when when uh, when Flannery was when, when they claimed Flannery was would, would have killed him now he has alibis up the wazoo for that obviously not least of all uh, Ray Mooney staying in his home. But also, they've got this verbal 
that says that Flannery had basically kicked Loxley out of the car after they'd had an argument at 6 o'clock in the morning in Sydney. So they've created this time frame that's actually not right. Yeah, it doesn't work. Right, because they confuse, they become confused. And Gomez's report was apparently quite confusing. And they've gone 30, 30 hours back from the, t- from the time the body was first found, but it was actually Gomez referring to 30 hours from when the autopsy commenced. Okay. Which took you back to that midday Saturday. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, and in order just to clarify this, we, so Flannery is now facing a committal. This is now in 1982. He's fa- facing a committal hearing over the over the murder of Ray Loxley, and Flannery's lawyer um, uh, gets or uh, well, questions Dr. Gomez in the box. Yeah. So this is another back and forth between the lawyer and uh, Gomez, and it starts with the lawyer asking. Information you've given to this court would place the time of death at around 12 midday on 11th of May. That is correct. That's the Saturday, yep. You would not be six hours out, would you, Doctor? You can. Gomez was referring to the possibility of Loxley being murdered six hours after midday, not six hours before midday, getting the the plus and minus mixed up here. Had the body died earlier that night? Uh, Well, I could say this much. The body had not died six hours earlier. I can put it at that. Uh-oh. Now, what I am putting to you is your estimate couldn't be that far out as being six hours earlier than midday on the 11th that the body died. Earlier, six hours earlier that on 12 p.m. on the 11th, couldn't be that far out, could it be? No. Dr. Gomez says no. Ouch. So the, cops, the cops took it to mean 30 hours from the first side of evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and concluded the time of death at 6 a.m. on May 11, wrongly. Mm-hmm. Their verbals, including one from Murphy, and had Flannery and Loxley in a car where Flannery was driving and said he worried that Loxley was going crazy and ordered him out of the car on the fringes of suburban Sydney at or around 6 o'clock on May 11. Remember, it was a 10-hour drive minimum from Melbourne to Sydney in those days. And if the murder had happened at midday, Flannery would have had to have driven up to Sydney with Loxley in the car at around 1 o'clock in the morning of May 11, 1979, and we know he didn't because he's got this alibi evidence. That's right. And at that precise time, he was at Mickey's with literally hundreds of witnesses. He went on to say that he returned home from Mickey's with Ray Mooney and that Ray had spent the night sleeping on the couch at Flannery's home, leaving at 8.30 in the morning. The Crown could contend with one alibi witness but not hundreds. Yeah. This led to an embarrassing backdown from Dr. Gomez who, after a huddle with prosecutors and police, mm-hmm. came up with a time of death 48 hours earlier to that evidence he had given at the committal. So the committal proceeds forward to trial and then Dr. Gomez changes his evidence. That's piss weak. Either way, it didn't add up. And Flannery had a long list of alibi witnesses who confirmed his appearance at Mickey's at midnight or thereafter on 10 May 1979 and remained at the club until 1 or 2 in the morning, according to Ray Mooney. The power of verbals was such that even with strong alibi evidence, the jury could not reach a verdict and a retrial was ordered. So mm-hmm. we had Gomez being cross-examined about the authenticity of his, of his evidence and it fell over. It really just did fall over. We had Murphy wasn't introduced to give evidence, although his uh, his verbal was was administered as evidence. Worsley was was Worsley gave gave evidence in the trial. The whole thing, it just it it should not have proceeded beyond committal. Yeah, 
and and certainly it, he should have been found not guilty at trial. Flannery should have been found not guilty at trial. And many in the legal fraternity in New South Wales viewed the non-verdict because basically there was a hung jury. Um, yeah, you know, okay. it should, I mean, it should, he should have been acquitted, but there was a hung jury based on the power of verbals. That's pretty crazy because it's clearly bullshit. I know, I know. Many in the legal fraternity and confusing bullshit because it's all over the place. Many in the legal fraternity in New South Wales viewed the non-verdict with alarm. By this stage, Flannery had become a notorious figure. So this is 1982. He, he's, you know, he's ridicule. Yeah. And the jury seemed to lapse on the side of his notoriety rather than examine the facts. Yeah, okay. I can get uh, to that. So hung jury... Retrial ordered, and no one could really understand why the retrial would go, why that should proceed. But it, it, they persisted with it. Uh, and Flannery's legal counsel at the time, led by a very famous name, Joel Virginia Bell. Yes, she was, she was uh, uh, Flannery's solicitor at the time. Now, Virginia Bell, as many listeners would know, would go on to be a High Court justice. Yes, very much so. Um, and in a letter that she wrote after the first trial, after the hung, after the hung jury. Uh, she wrote a letter to the uh, dear attorney to, to the attorney general, um, seeking that the murder charge be no built. Yes, trying to get sort of struck out, basically. Hmm. Um, the letter read this: "Dear attorney, Regina v. Christopher Dale Flannery, murder. Regina being like the the, the crown, basically. The crown. Hmm. Yeah. We act for the above named accused by letter dated the 28th of October, 1982. We made application to the former attorney general that a no bill of indictment be filed against our client in respect of this matter. Our application was unsuccessful. We have now been given access to some relevant material, which was not available to us when we lodged our no bill application. We have inspected portions of the Victorian police bureau of internal investigations file relating to detective Brian Francis Murphy. A crucial issue at our client's forthcoming trial with the credit of Detective Murphy. Detective Murphy has given evidence that our client made certain oral admissions to him concerning this matter on the evening of the 9th of August, 1979. Our client denies making these admissions. No other person corroborates Detective Murphy's account of the conversation. Detective Murphy's evidence is the only evidence which could be said to link our client to the commission of the offence. In the absence of Detective Murphy's evidence, it is respectfully suggested, they always say that sort of stuff, that the Crown would not have a case sufficient to be put to a jury. Our client was a part owner of a discotheque, Mickey's Disco, at the time he was said to have made the relevant admissions to Detective Murphy. Detective Murphy has conceded in evidence, both at the first trial and the committal hearing, that he was subject of an investigation by the Bureau of Internal Investigation concerning an allegation made by Mr. and Mrs. Fred Lab that he, Murphy, had corruptly received monies from the proprietors of Mickey's Disco. Detective Murphy has denied these allegations on oath. He has given an account in his evidence of receiving checks at the disco on behalf of his brother, Pat Murphy, a plumber. It was Detective Murphy's evidence that he had not received payments of a of cash from any person at Mickey's Disco. Detective Murphy went on to note in his evidence that it was his belief that Mrs. Lab had resolved from the allegations she had earlier made against him. Inspection of the police file concerning this matter confirms that Mr. and Mrs. Lab did make subsequent statements to investigating police in which they both expressed their belief that earlier allegations made by them about Murphy had been incorrect. Mm-hmm. However, Mrs. Lab does not depart from her statement that she paid sums of money to Detective Murphy. In her second statement, she expresses her belief the monies paid by her to Murphy were for the benefit of Murphy's brother. 
of greater significance is the fact that Detective Murphy's account of the incident given to Inspector Dole in the form of a record of interview on the 25th of November 1980 departs in important matters of detail from his account of these matters given in evidence before the coroner and at the first trial. In particular, Detective Murphy acknowledges in the record of interview that he received cash at the disco on four or five occasions. He again states that this money was received by him on behalf of his brother. They must have had fucked plumbing. Good Lord. Yes. In our submission, the discrepancies between Detective Murphy's accounts of this episode detract significantly from his credit. The Crown have also been granted access to the relevant portions of the Victorian Police Commissioner's file. In the light of the information contained therein, we ask that you give further consideration to directing that a no bill of indictment be filed against our client, Virginia Bell, solicitor. Yes, of course, Virginia Bell would go on to become a Justice of the High Court of Australia. She also right. worked on the Wood Royal Commission into New yeah. South Wales Police between 1994 and 1997. She was admitted as a solicitor in 1977, so at this point she was pretty new to legal practice, but she is and, uh, is a very clever cookie now. Well, you can now, see in that letter, she's like, you know, she's speaking, with some, she's speaking with the confidence of a fucking veteran, but she's only been doing it for a couple of years. Yeah, but the no-bill application was denied. Uh, at that point, a retrial was set, which involved all sorts of shenanigans, including false medical evidence from Dr. Jeffrey Edelston, who was later convicted of pervert course of justice and jailed over the matter. And that mm-hmm. relates to some tattoo removals. Ah. Um, there was a judge uh, waiting to hear the to hear the matter, the uh, the Loxley matter, and uh, the. There was a fear from Flannery that he was something of a hanging judge, so he uh, sought. Uh, the assistance of Jeffrey Edelston to, and Edelston wrote uh, basically a, uh, a a medical note, a medical explanation why Flannery couldn't sit, well, couldn't stand trial, and that was because uh, he had undergone tattoo removal, which had become infected, oh, wow. and that was all made up. And Edelston, as a result of that, uh, went to jail and uh, was struck off as a as a doctor. But ultimately, the retrial did not proceed, and the trial of Flannery was eventually no build in 1985. So another couple of years went by before it was ultimately knocked over, and that came about because the forensic um, scientist, the doctor, Doctor Gomez, died of natural causes. It must be said. And but Flannery, so it proves what we're going through here is just says that Flannery did not kill Ray Loxley. Yeah, alibi evidence out the window, verbals completely fabricated. So who did? Mm-hmm. And I asked Ray Mooney what Chris had told him at the time, and Ray replied that Flannery didn't know who the killer of Ray Loxley was, as he said in his statement, by the way, unsigned statement, or why. Loxley yep. was murdered, but he said that Flannery had told him that Paul Higgins, detectives, Paul Higgins, Buck Higgins, used to boast about the numbers of crooks he'd put off, killed. Yeah. yeah. Now, there may have been drug deals gone wrong, there may have been other motives, other incidents, but it's more likely than not that Ray Loxley was killed by corrupt police or under the instruction of corrupt police that included Brian Murphy and Paul Higgins. One who had killed a man in custody, the other widely known within Vicpol as a serial rapist. Mm-hmm. And as we wrap listeners, just think again what better man to label as a murderer than one who was known as a killer for hire. Absolutely. It was yeah. almost a perfect murder. Almost. And you have been listening to the Conditional Release Program with your host, Jack the Insider and Joel Hill. Jack, you found on Twitter on at Jack the Insider and Joel on at Crunchy Moses with AK. 
Set up a Facebook page you can find fairly easily. And if you enjoyed the episode, please share it on social media. As we said at the front of the program, we have a Patreon to help keep this sustainable. It's bloody yes. time consuming. It is. And we still have to pay rent. Help keep right. the lights on, folks. Yes, I wish I could say it was a mortgage, but it's not. For as little as $5 a month, you'll have access to all sorts of bonus content, including a weekly premium episode. And we try and make it worth your while with a, you know, look, this week has been a nice little week off cookers. But the pre-episode stuff. will be full of there's just lots bullshit. of there's lots of stuff if you salacious stuff. Yeah, yeah. Where we go loose, we go yeah. loose. Exactly. And finally, all feedback, tips, and death threats should be sent to the Condition Release Program at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you, even if it's to tell us that Brian the Skull Murphy is still alive. Oh, oh no! <laughs> no, guys, nah. he's dead. He's not suing us. He, I hope not. Is he? We'll, we'll see. All right. See you later, guys. See Thanks for coming. Thanks. Bye. I don't think I ever want to talk to any of those people. Fuck me, you guys are bastards! <laughs>